The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We know that, or we estimate that in the best case scenario, the U.S. government sees about 25% of all cyber intrusions throughout the country. Uh, there's a few reasons for that. There's no obligation for victims to report. Uh, and when I say the U.S. government, independent of whether those reports go to CISA or Secret Service or NSA or FBI, that's all inclusive of the 25%. But then you think of the value of the cyber threat intelligence that exists in the private sector, from your big strategics to your net defense companies that are censoring uh, networks, etc., None of us are operating with a common operating picture. And that makes our jobs and our partners at CISN, NSA, and other government agencies' jobs very, very difficult because of how the vast amounts of cyber threat intelligence data are dispersed through different parts of industry and different parts of the government under different authorities. I'm David Chris, And I'm Brian Cunningham. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 19th. 2023. Brian Vordren is assistant director of the FBI's cyber division, a position he's held since around March of 2021. Prior to that, he was the SAC in New Orleans, and he's worked in Afghanistan and on the JTTF at the Washington field office. We talked with Brian about his career trajectory, the FBI's top cyber challenges, the Bureau's relationships with other agencies and private sector entities, and the challenges posed by the People's Republic of China. The discussion with Brian continues our series of conversations with U.S. cyber leaders, including Chris Inglis, Kember Waldron, Jen Easterly, David Cohen, and Rob Joyce. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 19th. Brian Vordren, Assistant Director of the FBI Cyber Division. You're the AD of the FBI's Cyber Division, which is a hell of a job to have right now and you have been with the Bureau for quite some time. Can you just uh, start us off by telling uh, the audience about your career path and actually even some of your work before you joined the Federal BI? Yes, of course. And thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, You know, I grew up in uh, Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Philadelphia, so I'm a diehard Philadelphia sports fan. And um, Okay, we're not going to hold that against you at all. (laughs) (laughs) I have a civil engineering degree from Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania, and out of college I went to work at Procter & Gamble doing uh, operations engineering, essentially large-scale manufacturing, and then did similar work at Merck & Company, the pharmaceutical company that we're all familiar with. And While I was at Merck, I met somebody who encouraged me to apply to the FBI and really never thought it would work out, but it did. And um, essentially, here I am 21 years later. Uh, But it's amazing to think that that much time has really gone by uh, in my life, but also for a career that I've just thoroughly enjoyed and continue to enjoy. And, you know, investigatively, most of my agent time, street agent time was actually doing criminal enterprise, drug conspiracy work in Northern Virginia and D.C., and then uh, really got into the counterterrorism mission beginning in 2009 and enjoyed that all the way till 2016, really during the rise and the plateau of ISIS. And um, then up to Baltimore Division for the FBI for a year or so, working counterintelligence and cyber, 
a rotation back through FBI headquarters through for a few years and then down to New Orleans as the uh, special agent in charge or really the division head for the FBI New Orleans division, which was just a great experience for my family in terms of learning a different part of the country than I had ever been to. And somewhere in there, I went back to the University of Michigan, Michigan to get my uh, master's in business. So uh, going into the college football playoffs, I guess we say go blue at this point because they'll be in the semifinals, but that's a pretty good snapshot. Um, it's been a wonderful career. Wouldn't trade it for the world. Love the mission. Uh, love the people more. Just a wonderful experience. Well, Brian, thanks for your, thanks for your service. I think given your career path, you'd be the perfect person to ask about where the cyber division fits into the rest of the FBI, both at headquarters in the field, and also what the basic mission is, how it's organized, and how you see it as compared to some of the missions you had in the past. Sure. It's a great question. And one, I appreciate the opportunity to answer because it allows me to have the opportunity to really provide a foundational understanding. So I think most of your listeners will know that we have a decentralized workforce throughout the country. There's 56 field offices, 300 satellite offices, and then obviously we're in more than 60 countries globally. So, But when we get into the operational divisions and what we refer to as the operations function and the intelligence function, those are centralized back at FBI headquarters. And there's essentially four big ones, right? We have the criminal investigative division, the counterintelligence division, the counterterrorism division, and then cyber division. And within that construct, we have an operations function that's essentially broken down by threat country, and we essentially serve as program managers. We work with our field offices, with our interagency, with our global partners to pull together strategic goals, tactical execution plans so that we can impact the adversary. And then we have a very, very large intelligence function that all of you are very familiar with through the traditional intelligence community construct and the intelligence analyst position, where we break that work down into strategic and tactical level intelligence uh, that supports the strategies, that supports the tactical plans, and that really integrates our intelligence function with the totality of the intelligence community of CIA, Cyber Command, NSA, and others. When I talk about the FBI's cyber program, I talk about it in the spirit of four buckets. You know, the first bucket is one of our jobs is to take players off the field. You know, that is the traditional rule of law mission set that the FBI has always had and will always have. But we know that that by itself simply isn't enough when it comes to cyber um, just a little bit of a statistic. Uh, for in about the last two years, we have extradited about 25 criminals from a host of different foreign countries. So we do always and will always play the long game. But we do know that the safe haven status of the threat countries that we all know so well with China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea really makes that a challenging long-term goal that we can scale. The second bucket, second focus area is we need to leverage our domestic accesses through our intelligence apparatus to inform the intelligence community, but also to inform private sector. And that is extremely important to us, whether that's before an intrusion where we're, where we're sharing threat indicators or critical cyber intelligence, or during an intrusion after a victim is suffers an intrusion, that we have the relationship where we can get meaningful intelligence from those victims to share appropriately. The third bucket or third focus area is what I refer to as we have to pressure the threat. So within the FBI over the last three years, we've really started to change our strategy. And that strategy is the imposition of costs, both short-term and long-term on our adversary, really moving fully away from an indictment-only approach. And that's paid enormous dividends. But the only way that works is by doing very, very good, rigorous, detailed investigative work to generate opportunities to pressure the threat actors on a real-time basis. And the fourth bucket is we have to be victim-centered. DOJ and the FBI, you know, we believe we are based on 110 years of time, 115 years of time, you know, in this country doing the work, we have to be victim centered because a victim of a cyber crime is a real person. It is a real company. It's not virtual infrastructure that suffers 
as a victim. And we have to look at it that way. So we've put an enormous amount of time and energy into trying to be victim-centered, and we will continue to put an enormous amount of time into being victim-centered. I'm happy to go more into partners if you're interested, but as I look at the cyber division, just being responsive to your question, that's really how I look at our role and our construct. Well, that, that's that's really helpful. And I don't want to divert too long on this, but I, I was very interested in your uh, bucket three about not being uh, so indictment-centered because as many of our listeners will know, the CIA and the FBI have on occasion been a little bit like the Hatfields and the McCoys when it comes to what we as CIA officers would call strategic intelligence operations versus law enforcement. So I'm just, I'm really interested in how you see that shift playing out in the cyber domain. Yeah, of course. So let's just take 2023 by way of example. So in January, we had the disruption of Hive infrastructure, where we had essentially worked with private industry to share decryptor keys for seven months quietly with victims so that we could provide relief to victims. And if you believe the data, which I do, it's about $130 million of relief to to multiple hundred victims worldwide. But then we disrupted the infrastructure in April was the Genesis marketplace disruption. And that's where we have customers, both domestically and globally, buying initial accesses on the deep and dark web to catalyze ransomware attacks against U.S. companies and global companies. And in that scenario, there were about 500 different government actions domestically and globally to really try to piece together the totality of the intelligence picture as we develop that infrastructure. In May was the QuackBot disruption, where we really focused on disrupting the infrastructure. Mixed in there was Operation Medusa, which was impacting the Russians' infrastructure and work they were doing against us here in the United States. Not one of those is an indictment-focused approach. It's all an approach with partners, both domestically and globally, private and public, to impose cost in the most significant way possible. And internally to the FBI, we see a maturation to this goal and towards this strategy in real time. Now, it's going to take us a while to scale, as any new strategy does, but we're well on our way and very, very comfortable and confident sharing that with you. So can I just uh, ask another one on that? Because I think it's super interesting. First, I mean, can you make a comparison between the pressure, the threat approach broadly and sort of what? out of the fort they would call defend forward or persistent engagement, you know, against the cyber threat. That's sort of point one, just to compare it with the public articulations of the DOD approach. Number sort of two, I guess, would be, can you talk a little bit more about FBI's non-indictment organic authorities? That is, are you mostly doing discovery and analytics and investigation and then letting you know, Cyber Command go clobber an IP address abroad or something? Or do you yourselves use maybe civil authorities or something else to take down an offensive location or website. And I guess third, you know, are the agents under your supervision motivated by their career aspirations appropriately to pursue non-law enforcement opportunities? Are they going to get the stat that they need to move up for doing things that are other than indictment? You could take any one of those three questions if you wanted and see how far we get. Sure, no problem. Let's take the first one first. I do think that if you had somebody in my place here today from any one of the IC component agencies, DOD or other, I I think they would all basically say the same thing, right? We have to be in a position collectively to include with the private sector, and I think that's something we should probably talk about here within the next hour, where we are collectively trying to move towards a common operating picture with the goal of imposing short-term and long-term barriers and pressuring the threat and making their life more difficult. And, you know, I think, you know, if you had General Hartman here or Rob Joyce here from NSA or Eric Goldstein from CISA, they would all say a similar thing. It's how do we come together to share intelligence, to share complementary authorities with a goal of having a maximum short-term and long-term disruptive impact on our adversaries. Uh, so I do think the interagency and the intelligence community has really coalesced around 
that strategic intent quite well. And I think we're maturing quite well. And, you know, our partners in the space, in the interagency, whether that's NSA, CIA, Cyber Command, you know, CISA, Secret Service, it really runs the gamut with OFAC. Mm -hmm. The partnerships are tremendous. And uh, there really is a team first environment within that grouping. And I've been in my job for going on three years. You have seen the maturation of that grouping together over those three years, which I think should be very, very reassuring for the American public, certainly is reassuring for me. Um, so I think that's a really fair and appropriate and honest answer to your first question. Yeah. And so I remember your third question, but do you remember the second one? Because that one slipped my mind. Yeah, sorry. So, you know, no, I'm that. I mean, I was thinking about, so you're in the interagency and, you know, the old adage that to a man holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you've got indictment authority and law enforcement authority. Do you have other authorities that are unique to the FBI or, or at least within the FBI's discretion to use that that can take down or or impose pain and misery on an adversary other than indictment or would you just investigate and then hand it off to cyber command or somebody else to do something what else can you yep. do besides indict to hurt the bad guys sure i mean it's a great question and i'll give you an answer through two examples so the answer is whether it's nsa whether it's fbi the core function and the authorities that underpin the daily work we do on our side, it's the investigative work, are what leads us to having operational opportunities to drive operational outcomes. And so the underpinning of our core work, whether I'll just speak for myself, for the Bureau, is if we do our investigative work well, and we do it in concert with our interagency partners in the private sector, so we have as much intelligence as available to everybody, we generate operational opportunities. And those operational opportunities show in a few ways. But uh, the easiest example for me to use is the Cyclops Blink disruption from May of 22, which is the Russians essentially building a botnet in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine. And in that scenario, the Russians had compromised edge routers globally and domestically. And in that scenario, we worked with the US-based manufacturer of those edge routers. We worked obviously with DOJ, with NSA, with Cyber Command. We use Rule 41 in that scenario to essentially go in and delete the malware. Um, now, I think we would all agree that in Rule 41, the term that's so important is, it says the FBI can seize, quote unquote, instrumentalities of a crime. And I think we would all agree that the Russians putting malware surreptitiously on US hardware is an instrumentality of a crime. So it lets us go in and essentially remove, well, let me be firm, copy that malware for evidentiary purposes, and then remove it. It also allowed us, the warrant allowed us to do hardening of ports in there. So that's just a really good example of where we would do our work domestically under Rule 41, and Cyber Command would likely do complementary work under their titled authority elsewhere in similar operations. Okay. And then let's say you end up with a Rule 41 operation, or let's say the FBI just does the investigative part and then hands off because somebody else has a better tool for this particular problem. Are your agents going to be rewarded through the internal systems for promotion and recognition at the FBI for the key investigative work, even if at the very end, you know, the, the pointy end of things is administered by another IC element? It's an interesting question. So, I think, and I believe based on my experience, that most enterprising FBI agents who have capabilities to perform at the line level or at the leadership level are all interested in one thing, and that's maximum impact on the adversary. And those types of people always have opportunities because they're entrepreneurial and they're talented. And I don't see a scenario where they wouldn't be rewarded appropriately. I think the challenge for the FBI is just continue to scale and grow our cyber program so that there's more capability throughout the totality of the organization and so that we continue to evolve and become more mature, more mature and more precise in terms of how we can execute. Uh, but I don't see any barriers, whether real or artificial, that would prevent uh, somebody from being recognized appropriately. 
it would be useful now to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about what are the biggest challenges that you see cyber division and the broader cybersecurity community in the U.S. government facing, especially ones that really have not received enough attention in your view uh, or are underappreciated by the public? Yep. Um, I may underwhelm you with my answer because I'm a, I'm a big, big believer in fundamentals. That's okay. Uh, That's okay, Brian. It's okay. D- David underwhelms me all the time. Right, exactly. <laughs> I was just thinking that. You know, one of the biggest, and I'll give you three if that's okay. Um, One of the biggest challenges we face every day is is simply the continued lack of basic implementation of cybersecurity fundamentals on networks. You know, most malicious actors get onto a network because of easily guessed passwords, uh, lack of MFA, people continuing to click on links and through vulnerabilities that have long had patches available. So, I know your listeners have probably heard this before, likely in the context of just how many cyber incidents that could be prevented if we address those basics. But I'll just tell you why it matters to the FBI. Uh, Right now, one adversary can simply buy quite cheaply credentials or exploits from brokers, selling those same things to all of our other adversaries. That makes it really hard to determine who might be behind a cyber incident and to deter adversaries from continuing to use those same methods. You know, but if our networks all use more secure verification, MFA, patching vulnerabilities in real time to the best of our ability, you know, adversaries would be forced to spend millions of dollars and hours and hours and hours on specialty tools that right now they don't have to do use. So cyber hygiene and making software and devices secure by design is just so important for our future. And so are you on board with like, you know, the lift and shift kind of uh, Biden administration executive order? CISA made a lot of noise about this, about sort of requiring secure by design and sort of trying to take the burden off the pathetic end user and towards the well-resourced producer of an item, particularly like an Internet of Things item. Do you, you think that's an important, correct strategy? You know, I had a lot of conversations about this topic with Chris Inglis when uh, he and his staff had written the National Cyber Strategy and certainly am familiar with what is referenced in uh, your prior statement. I think it's hard for me to understand in my role what part of that is actually feasible versus what part of that is aspirational. And I actually just reread this portion of the National Cyber Strategy yesterday you know, and it indicates that NCD, the National Cyber Director, and CISA have primarily responsibility for those uh, deliverables. And I thought to myself, I'm glad I don't have to deliver. <laughs> than <I'm> me, huh? <laughs> right? Uh, because that's hard. I don't. Again, I don't know what's feasible. I don't know what's aspirational. Um, conceptually, the focus on security fundamentals, though, is really important. I would just draw your audience's attention to one other really important piece of data. And I don't have it in front of me, so I may not get it exactly right, but thematically, I think I'll get it right. In the first Cyber Safety Review Board report, the Log4J or Log4Shell report, there's a notation in there about the lack of consistent and accredited secure coding practices in academia. And so I have a civil engineering degree and the, you know, the degree program I went through is obviously accredited so that I know how to build a bridge safely and I know how to build a building safely. But it's surprising that in all of our academic institutions, there is appears to be no baseline standard of secure coding that's taught throughout the educational practice. Mm. And I think all of these things lend to vulnerabilities and lend to a less secure environment. So another challenge that I don't think everyday Americans are tracking is simply how easy it has become for adversaries to rotate on and off of U.S. infrastructure, you know, and they can move on and off U.S. infrastructure in minutes. You know, it's often unclear to the FBI and others who is leasing those U.S. servers and because the servers are often deleted and reused before we get a handle on what an adversary may be trying to do. Just really difficult to stitch all this together. Is that supposed to be fixed by the executive order? I think it's 13984, but I don't remember the exact number, you know, on know your customer requirements for infrastructure as a service providers. How, how's how's that going? So I think that that's something we could spend another hour on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's why 
that's difficult. The example I then just gave, though, in terms of rolling yeah. on and off of U.S. infrastructure, that's why I think it's very difficult for me to think about losing FISA 702 collection. And, you know, I just, it's really important for the audience to know that FISA 702 only collects against foreign targets. And a lot has been discussed about incidental USPR information. I'm happy to get into that later if helpful. But almost every classified technical report we produce has FISA 702 information in it. Yeah. And it's just hard for me to, to determine how, um, how we may navigate that. But, but for like, you know, misuse of domestic infrastructure, you know, and VPSs and renting and then f- running before, I mean, there you're really more in the traditional FISA sort of chasing the bad guy. You lost roving authority a few years ago due to sunset in 2020, I guess. I mean, are you, you're having trouble keeping up with the adversary as they hop around from one reseller to another? I mean, is that, yep. and that's really not a 702 amenable solution. You can go get them abroad, I guess, but. Well, when you look at the 702 provisions, right, essentially what they say is any foreign adversary riding on international or domestic infrastructure can uh-huh. be tracked via 702. Okay. Um, if we lose that 702 authority, we won't be able to track those adversaries at all on U.S. infrastructure outside of the traditional t- FISA Title I, Title III process, which is much, much more complicated. Yeah. Right. Uh, let me just give you one other challenge because I think yeah. it's an important one. We know that, or we estimate that in the best case scenario, the U.S. government sees about 25% of all cyber intrusions throughout the country. Uh, There's a few reasons for that. There's no obligation for victims to report. Uh, And when I say the U.S. government, independent of whether those reports go to CISA or Secret Service or NSA or FBI, that's all inclusive of the 25%. But then you think of the value of the cyber threat intelligence that exists in the private sector, from your big strategics to your net defense companies um, that are that are censoring uh, networks, et cetera. None of us are operating with a common operating picture. And that makes our jobs and our partners at CIS and NSA and other government agencies' jobs very, very difficult because of how the vast amounts of cyber threat intelligence data are dispersed through different parts of industry and different parts of the government under different authorities. And so that is a very, very significant challenge uh, for all of us in this space. Well, well, let's go there. So there's like the the approach to cyber incident reporting looks like, and this is not really a criticism, but it looks a little bit like throwing spaghetti against the wall, meaning the, uh, there's CERCIA, there's some some statutory requirements, and then there's some agency, you know, department and agency regulations using organic authorities. And then, you know, SEC, we want to definitely talk about that rule. Um, but there's a lot of different requirements for different industry sectors and some that are more generic. Do you think at some point there's a need to sort of step back and put a set of intelligent design principles to work on what has otherwise been a fairly organic evolution of of independent authorities i mean are you are we ready to sort of rationalize all these requirements do you think we're ready at some point soon or do you even agree with the premise that it's a kind of a spaghetti throw so I can't remember who, but I was talking to a CISO of a multinational company within the last year about this general topic. And she told me that they domestically and globally have more than a hundred different entities they have to report to if there's a cyber intrusion. And the drag and inefficiency that causes on US companies is really significant. You know, I think that the Cyber Incident Reporting Council is really pointed at trying to solve the problem that you just outlined. And, you know, really with the goal of synthesizing all of these different reporting requirements. So I do think it's an evolution that we have to continue to go through, not not as a government, but as a society, to make sure that we're being fair and efficient on all sides and, and quite frankly, reasonable as well. But it does lead me back to the statement I just made about the biggest challenge, right? This lack of common operating picture is a real significant intelligence challenge for all of us. And the synthesization of that reporting is really important to that common operating picture. I mean, like 
you know, po- post 9-11, we tried to get CIA and FBI, this is a little bit rough, rough, you know, sort of glib, but to connect those dots. And it was hard enough in certain ways for the IC to do it. You're now talking about a much larger collection of departments, agencies, and so forth who are in possession of various reports. Are we going to be able to really build those bridges sort of one-off between each of those, or are we going to possibly have to construct some kind of centralized reporting portal, which then feeds out to the various departments and agencies and sort of, you know, works just different from the ground up? Yep. You know, I think uh, DHS and CISA have done a, a pretty good job with how they've looked at CERCIA, which really maps to what you just described. And it's going to have to be a centralized intake with a push out to other equity holders and stakeholders. Uh, the you know, One of the important pieces, though, becomes the victims who report, independent of what agency they have to or want to report to, they should all be afforded the same protections to share with the U.S. government. And right now, there's an imbalance with that as well. You know, CERCIA does provide liability and privilege protections to victims reporting to CISA, but it doesn't provide those same protections elsewhere. And so it continues to create this imbalance, uh, which I just see as opportunity for us all to evolve moving forward. And so, you know, I do think it eventually has to be centralized. I would give CISA quite a bit of credit for how they've run the CERCIA process and expect that they will be successful when they roll that out because of the approach they've taken. And a credit to them, right? But that model of centralized reporting while coupled with providing victims the opportunity to share with who they want to share with, with the same protections becomes an important part of the conversation as well. Yeah, that's great. So that actually is a cause for some optimism because at the time of Circea, I mean, I recall reading something from your friend and mine, Lisa Monaco, on your behalf saying, this is going to make us less safe just having unique reporting into Circea without simultaneous reporting to the Bureau. And I mean, it sounds like your worst fears have not been realized there and everybody is sort of working and playing well together uh, within the government. So that gives me some comfort. Yeah. Let me expand on that though a little bit if I can. So yeah. when we, in our, in our nerd world, right? Like <laughs> we, we, we talk it about as presidential policy directive 41, which yeah. really is a three-legged stool, you know, for the listeners that don't know asset response given to CISA threat response given to FBI and really the intelligence apparatus underpinning both to ODNI. But again, this common operating picture becomes really, yeah. really important. And if there's, Barriers that are removed that enable a victim to share more easily with one agency than another, that's not good business for us as a country. And that still does exist, right? And that's the liability and privilege protections that I mentioned. So, you know, I do believe we are improving, but uh, there are still problems to be solved in that space. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life. What would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare twenty, and so let's let's talk about your efforts, I guess, to solve or or deal with one aspect. The SEC for publicly traded companies now has a a rule requiring them to file eight Ks for certain material cyber incidents. But there is, I think, quite sensibly, an exception that, you know, in some cases, maybe we don't want to make a public report of a cyber incident immediately. And, you know, there's a pretty well-known set of arguments pro and con around prompt and public reporting of vulnerabilities. And there's a whole vulnerabilities, equities, you know, process around that. For example, 
you might not want the bad guy who's launched the cyber attack to know that you're on to him, or you might not want to publicize the details of a vulnerability, say, you know, before a patch or other defense has been, you know, created and is available for people. So there's a, a national security exception, I guess, built into the SEC rule, and that then brings people to you. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the rule and the uh, national security exception process and how you guys approached your role in this and, and how you're trying to make it, I hope, you know, useful for companies? Yeah, of course. And this has consumed the last couple of weeks <laughs> of my life and probably will consume this weekend as the yeah. rule goes live on Monday, December 18th. Man. But um, okay, a couple things, right? So the, the SEC rule essentially gives the attorney general or his or her designee the opportunity to approve public safety national security delay provisions from filing a public AK. The FBI's role in that is really as a component agency to the Department of Justice to serve as an entity, an agency that can pull together all of the intelligence community, sector risk management agency, CIS's equities to properly evaluate and inform the attorney general or the designee's decision on whether the public disclosure of that incident would would pose a public safety or national security risk. And so the FBI is the central portion of the hub and the spokes to essentially receive a request from a victim. And I'll say more on that in a minute, because it's not just the FBI who can submit those requests. But the core FBI role is to evaluate the facts that are submitted by the victim and to go collect equities from the intelligence community and then to inform the DOJ's decision. The rule makes it very clear, though, that any component agency that has a relationship with a victim can submit to the FBI and to the Department of Justice a delay request on behalf of that victim. So we're very, very careful and clear and appropriate in saying that a victim who has a relationship with any sector risk management agency, with CISA, with Secret Service, should feel free to first engage those agencies to share the totality of what's happened, and then to work with that agency to submit to the FBI's centralized portal the facts that need to be submitted for us to do our interagency evaluation. So if I'm a victim, I'm really thinking about it this way, right? I have an incident independent of whether I am or am not going to ask for a public safety or national security delay. I am going to go start talking to the FBI or the other U.S. government agency with whom I have the closest relationship and start having dialogue about the facts, um, the evidence from the intrusion, and start thinking about whether I do or don't want to submit that request. That request really needs to be submitted in a very narrow time frame, And it's defined as this, when an organization, or as we're talking, a victim, makes the decision to disclose via 8K and they want to pursue a national security or public safety delay, that request for delay has to be submitted concurrently with the decision to disclose. Because we only have about 96 hours or four business days to do all of our equities checks and to roll that together for DOJ and for DOJ to make a decision and then contact the victim with the decision. So again, very clear, a victim of a cyber intrusion, they should engage with the U.S. government agency with whom they have the best relationship, and they should start talking with that U.S. government agency about whether they want to submit a delay request. And then if they want to submit a delay request, all of this is outlined on our website, which is www.fbi.gov slash SEC. Uh, it's really a one-stop shop for those processes. So hopefully that offers some background. Yeah. Can I just, I want to make sure I, I understand, because I actually talked about this on Stuart Baker's podcast earlier uh, this week, and we were puzzling over a couple of things. It, it looks like a, a formal request for delay requires a confession of materiality. And to the extent that's true, you know, people might be disincentivized. But I think what you're saying is, you, you can say whether that's true or not. But if it is true, it sounds like the the reason that may not be a huge problem is because they can have a big pre-decisional engagement with you and or their sector overseer to sort of work out 
how they want to approach the thing. Is is that? Can you talk a little bit about that and help clear up what I've just yep. butchered? Yeah. Oh no, you didn't butcher it. So we were very specific with our language, and we actually changed some of the language that originally went out, and it's modified now. What we're saying is that, and I can explain why. What we're saying is that a request for a public safety or national security delay has to be made concurrently when with the decision to disclose V8K publicly. We've purposely removed the word materiality because we don't believe councils are going to want to say to the FBI, okay, we have a material incident. Um, That's for them to share with the SEC. So we soften that language. Now, many would argue, and I agree that it is synonymous, but we did soften that language. But what we want to avoid two things. Number one, we can't do the totality of the work we're tasked with doing with DOJ in under 96 hours, right? It's just so much work (laughs) that we need that full 96 hours. And we want to avoid the scenario where where we're, we're allowing for opportunities to see how it plays out and what I would call prophylactic requests. Now, looking at this from a positive view, from a good intent view, I don't have any information to indicate that anybody would use it that way, but we really do need to stay focused on, we need those full 96 hours to do our job the right way uh, with all the moving parts. I mean, the reality is we could be going to seven or eight agencies and asking them to provide inputs to us so that we can then roll together and summarize it for DOJ. Okay. But you also are encouraging disclosure and engagement before the 96 hour clock starts ticking, right? You, you, yes. you, you do want them yeah. in the door. Yeah. So, I mean, whenever any bureaucratic or, you know, requirement or a deadline is imposed, you know, there's always the question, how do we start actually working before the clock starts ticking as well as how do we extend it? Um, do you think, I mean, you, this is a policy document for you. So relatively easy to change, I think, in the pantheon of, of regulatory documents. Are you going to sort of learn from experience and reassess every three to six months or something, or at least periodically and, and see how the how the thing plays out? Yeah. And let me just go back to the previous point. I think it's worth reemphasizing a second or a third time here. We see it as two distinct lines of effort. Line of effort one, there's an intrusion. You engage, I'll just use the FBI because it's me today, right? You as a victim engage with the FBI and say, here's what we have, right? We're not at a point where we're saying we're ready to disclose VAK. It's not at a point where we're saying it's material or not material to drive that decision. But here's what we have. Can you make sure that we're reading DOJ's guidance about when these public safety national security days would be appropriate, wouldn't be appropriate? But we start having maturing conversations around an incident so that everybody has as much working knowledge as possible. Line of effort two, I've made a decision as a victim that I need to disclose via 8K. Here's now the process I need to actually go through to make the formal request to DOJ for the public safety or national security delay. One of the first line of effort obviously precedes the second, but both are obviously obviously very tied together. And it's only the second one that then triggers the clock. Correct. And and where you have to rush. So yeah. Yeah. And we're very, very clear in our guidance and our policy notes that are all posted on the website I mentioned that engaging with the FBI in no way triggers materiality, nor does it trigger the 96-hour clock. We're very, very specific and forward with that language in hopes that it puts the victim and their counsel at ease. Right. And I'm sorry, what was the second part of that question? The second part was just whether, because it's a policy document and not like in the CFR, whether you're going to tweak it if an ad experience dictates. It's pretty easy, relatively speaking, for you to change that document. So, yeah. Yeah. Two quick notes on that. One, we've made tweaks already um, (laughs) to when it was posted last Friday. Um, (laughs) But secondly, you know, we know um, that as Circea comes online, that there's going to be a need to, as I said before, synthesize all of this together. And so we're looking at this in standard intervals, right? We have no idea how many requests we're going to receive. We don't know if it's one a month. We don't know if it's 100 a month. But just that alone will dictate some amount of change to our internal processes and policies, as well as those of CISA and Secret Service and others. 
And so, but then we have standard intervals, which we have to review the policy for accuracy. But the big one is we want to make sure that when Circea does come online, that all of this is orchestrated and synthesized as much as possible together for the victims. Hey, this is, uh, I think, really, really helpful for people to try to sort this out, Brian. But I wonder, well, I don't wonder, our regular listeners will know that we advise clients that there's actually even a preliminary step to all of this, which is especially for small and medium-sized enterprises, already having contact with the relevant FBI, CISA folks before an incident happens. So you not have to just cold call people. How do you think about that? What should companies be doing there? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question. When we talk about this, it's it's exactly what you just mentioned. You know, we talk about the before intrusion phase as the most important part of this conversation. And it is so important for companies or organizations to have those relationships in place prior to game day. It's just the reality of it. It allows all of us to get on the same page about expectations. How does the victim want, I'll just, again, I'll use the FBI. It could be CISA for sure. It could be Secret Service. It could be a sector risk management agency. It could be NSA. How do they want us to engage? Do they want us to go through counsel? Do they want to meet in person? Do they want to meet in out-of-band communications channels in case their infrastructure is compromised? What are they going to want from the FBI in those moments afterwards? Conversely, what does the FBI want from them that's time sensitive? And what does the FBI want from them that's not time sensitive that will be helpful down the road? But it's this common conversation about common expectations that becomes so important in having those relationships in place. So when we talk about this, we use the just this very basic build a relationship report the intrusion, right? Those are the two steps. Build a relationship beforehand and then report the intrusion if unfortunately it does happen. And so if you're the a company in Chicago, your general counsel might want to in, just engage with the field office as a prophylactic measure before trouble has happened, just to develop a relationship there. Yep. They'll, they'll receive that call and not just <laughs> hang up on you. You know, we, as I said at the top of our chat here this afternoon, we have put an enormous amount of attention on engagement with industry, private sector, you know, nonprofit organizations. And certainly, if I'm being fair, and I think everybody would understand this, we can't scale to 30 million US businesses, right? It's just simply not possible. But we really do do our best to try to have the most center of gravity relationships in place that are really important for national security and for critical infrastructure. Um, and it's something that we continue to evolve and aspire to. But I would obviously be lying if I tell you we can we can respond to 30 million businesses. It's just not realistic. But we do try to do our best. Um, and certainly we do try to prioritize those organizations that have national security, critical infrastructure elements to them and who want a relationship with us. Okay, well, fair enough. Uh, unless there's a big budget increase, that seems you know, very reasonable. Do you want to just speak generally about, and you may not, but about the sort of, there's a perception, I think, among some, including myself at least, that like non-state entities in general, including but not limited to private sector entities, but also standard setting bodies and academic institutions and various international organizations are just an increasing part of an increasingly important part of the operating environment, particularly in respect of technological challenges like cyber. Do you have thoughts you want to share on sort of the rise or the role of non-state entities generally as a problem set for you? When you say non-state entities, do you mean private sector academia here in the U.S. or elsewhere? Uh, I, I would embrace both in the U.S. and abroad. And so they might include Look, I mean, Al-Qaeda would be a non-state entity too. So there would be non-state entities you'd be working with, and then there might be some you would be sort of working on. But I'm more interested in the ones you might be working with, either domestically or internationally. Sure. You know, I think as I'm just thinking through this, we we really align our private sector engagement into four or five buckets uh, but some of them have a few parts. You know, the the first is 
um, in no particular order, by the way. The first is systemically important partners, right? As I just mentioned in the last uh, part of our conversation, who are those organizations across the United States, whether it's academia, whether it's private sector, whether it's nonprofit organizations that have an outsized impact on our national security or our critical infrastructure that if compromised could have, again, an outsized impact. You know, we don't have to go too far in the past to understand Colonial Pipeline and JBS Foods. Those are companies that when compromised had an outsized impact on on just the United States and the way we expect our country to operate. So that that's bucket one. Bucket two is victims, right? The victim approach, again, as I've said multiple times here already today, is extremely important to us and will remain extremely important to us. So how are we engaging with that group to support and to extract meaningful intelligence to feed into that common operating picture? And then there's three others, right? The first is councils of victims, because I think we all know that a victim as a victim really is governed by how their council, whether in-house or out outside counsel really wants them to engage with the U.S. government, with regulators, et cetera. And so that's an important group of people for us to have relationships. And then we have obvious relationships. The fourth bucket is your major incident response firms. They have tremendously valuable intelligence, um, but they're also just really smart on the threat because of how much they see. And then the last would be your traditional cyber threat intelligence companies. Um, you know, I'm not going to name names here, but there's obviously extreme power in the U.S. private sector space about uh, what cyber threat intelligence exists in their hands and having a relationship with them is extremely important. You know, we also look at international partners. And one thing that we're really, really proud of, if you look back at the press releases that have come out dating back to fall of 21, the bottom portion of the press releases generally lists a host of public and private sector partners. And we're really proud that Many of those press releases identify foreign private sector partners who have helped with disruptions. I think it just points us back to this overall strategy of how do we work with our domestic and global public and private sector partners in tandem to impose maximum cost on our adversaries. So that's how we kind of look at the breakdown of those that we work with. Oh, that's super helpful. Thank you. Well, now that we've all now that we've exhausted all the easy topics. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's have a bit of a chat about the People's Republic of China, and you can take it in whichever way you want. I've I've started to say, my words, not yours, that in cyberspace, uh, Russia is the mosquito and China is malaria. But how bad do you see the cyber challenge from the PRC, and 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 how do you see it in terms of both information operations and then also sort of traditional cyber attacks? Yep. Again, we could talk probably for two hours about this one. Um, so, you know, a few years ago, we may have said that China represented the most significant long-term cyber threat, and that would have been a very accurate statement and still is to today. But ODNI's annual threat assessment that was published, um, you know, nine months ago now, March of 23, really made clear that Beijing is working to meet its goal of fielding a military by 2027 that can deter U.S. intervention in a crisis between China and Taiwan. And, you know, for kids, 2027 may seem like a long way away, but for me and for many of us, it's really not that far away. Beijing sprinting towards that goal means a lot of potential threats are or will be coming at all of us in the near future. So China still does represent the broadest, most active and persistent cyber espionage threat to us today. It's just that basic. You know, we have seen consistently Chinese state sponsored cyber actors targeting almost every industry you could think of software, telecom, computer hardware, education, hospitality, NGOs, you name it, they, they've targeted it. And while the actors have this ability to launch very sophisticated zero-day attacks against any of our networks, really a significant number of the intrusions are the result of known yet unpatched vulnerabilities. It does draw us back to this conversation about security fundamentals and how important they are. You know, there's a cybersecurity advisory published um, a little bit ago by NSA and CISA and the FBI, probably last fall, which really highlights the top tactics used and the vulnerabilities exploited by the Chinese actors. And really understanding the TTPs of the Chinese actors is so important. Second, 
China uses access to its vast market and control over critical supply chains to force foreign companies to comply and to coerce foreign countries to allow the transfer of technologies and IP. So for many U.S. or foreign companies doing business in China or looking to do business in China, the cost of business really in a best case scenario is consent to state surveillance. Uh, In a worst case scenario, it means really accepting the risk that your sense of information may be co-opted for geopolitical goals or economic gain. And this has actually happened, right? Um, There's a great little YouTube video called Made in Beijing that I would direct your listeners to that just really summarizes some of those real risks. And third with China, I would say if a major conflict with the U.S. was imminent, you know, Beijing would almost certainly consider undertaking aggressive cyber operations against homeland critical infrastructure and military assets. Um, We don't have to go far back in our history here today to really understand, you know, the publications coming out of uh, cyber threat intelligence companies about Volt Typhoon and their living off the land techniques to really showcase this access that the Chinese desire for future endeavors. So the threat is very real. It's very current and it's very voluminous. Uh, just something that everyone needs to pay attention to. Yeah. All right. Well, you've been very patient and generous with your time, Brian. I'm think we will maybe bring it to a close, but give you an opportunity to say anything you want to say. You want to talk about high altitude balloons. You want to talk about the FISA Amendments Act. You want to talk about Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> the Philadelphia Eagles. Okay. Uh, the Wrexham, uh, you know, TV series with Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, who's also an Eagles fan. Anything you like, end-to-end encryption, whatever. If you're okay with it, I may just take a moment to walk through 702 and how it's really structured, just so every time I have an opportunity to really have this conversation, I find it helpful. So listen, 702 has been obviously a major topic of discussion. And so I just want to go through the query standards that we use within the FBI so that they're very transparent. These are elsewhere, but I think it's just a point to reiterate. There's really three parts of the following query standard. The first is we must have an authorized purpose. You know, the person Conducting the query must have the purpose of retrieving foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime from raw FISA. Secondly, it must be reasonably designed. So the query terms must be reasonably tailored to retrieve foreign intelligence information or evidence of crime without unnecessarily retrieving other information from raw FISA. And third, it must be justified. So the person conducting the query must have a specific factual basis to believe that the query is reasonably likely to retrieve foreign intelligence or evidence of a crime. And I think it's important to reiterate like that everything we're querying has already been legally and lawfully collected. So let's just look at a really brief example. The FBI is investigating foreign threats potentially targeting a U.S. person. So for this case, let's say it's a Chinese intelligence service targeting an American person via a cyber vector. We query that U.S. person's identifiers against FISA data to find whatever foreign intelligence information regarding the threat we have in our holdings. So we have met the standard of an authorized purpose. We have specific facts about the threat and relevant foreign actors that make it reasonably likely the query will return results in raw FISA. So we are justified. However, we are looking for information about threats coming from a particular threat country, as I mentioned in this case, China. But we don't limit our query to run against only case classifications relative to China. So it is not sufficiently reasonably designed. So when you look at the compliance and reforms, I think the FBI has been quite transparent about the failures we've had in 702. And there have been a host of reforms that have been publicly shared and measures internally implemented, and then the audits publicly shared. Uh, Those are opt-in standards, batch query approval, and sensitive query approval. And we've seen more than a 96% compliance rate improvement. And so we're not done, but uh, just an opportunity for me to share the, the transparently with your audience about where we are and what we're trying to do to continuously improve. Okay, I mean, fair enough. It, it was it was pretty grim for a while there, based on the reports. But on the other hand, the court itself has acknowledged genuine improvement. So you know, there's no question it seems to be trending in the right direction. I guess 
I mean, a follow-up question on that, and I'm not trying to get you to commit news here or, you know, stake out a administration position ahead of, uh, you know, ahead of the White House. But I mean, the Hipsy bill, which is relatively favorable as compared to the HJC or the other bills that are out there, would forbid non-FI, non-foreign intelligence queries. So queries designed to inform an investigation of Bonnie and Clyde for bank robbery, but wouldn't otherwise really add too many restrictions or prohibitions on your query authorities. Can you say, can you live with that? Or uh, can you assess the relative impact of that kind of a limitation on a Bonnie and Clyde query as against other queries? Or what, if anything, are you authorized to say without getting fired, you know, on the, on that limitation from the Hipsy bill? You know, I want to be really careful here. Because, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, <Roger> that. <laughs> uh, but because, you know, the FBI and DOJ have very specific positions on all of these. I think that the example of Bonnie and Clyde, I think, is an easy one. I think it gets a little bit more complicated when you talk about the fentanyl problem. And when you look at how fentanyl comes into the United States and where the precursors are generated, um, it just brings into question the linear approach of what is and isn't truly just a crime. Um, And so it's a really complicated conversation for all of us. Um, So I'll just leave it at that for today, if that's okay. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And we're definitely not trying to cause trouble for you. I mean, it is interesting that the Hipsy bill also amends the definition of foreign intelligence. You you said we were in nerd land before, and that's that's Brian and I, we hang out there. (laughs) So I'll just say the Hipsy bill, it's amazing to me that it hasn't kicked up more fuss, but um, it has a definitional change to foreign intelligence information uh, to include even non-governmental, non-narco-terrorism efforts to uh, import uh, drugs uh, into the U.S. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of IC involvement and intelligence involvement in drug, anti-drug activities abroad, but that's a that's a non-trivial change. And it's funny that it, it doesn't seem to me to be getting a lot of publicity, but that would feed right into a, a foreign intelligence query related to fentanyl or something like that. So anyway, we got three more months, we'll, you know, before the... Uh, before the debate really heats up again. So maybe we can have you back and have a little chat as we get closer to the deadline and the positions have hardened in. But thank you very much, uh, Brian. You've been a good sport. And uh, I think you've really provided a lot of helpful information for our uh, audience. So we're quite grateful. Indeed. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for your service. And uh, I hope you have uh, good holidays. And I'm going to say, I hope the Eagles do well, but they might already be out of it. That's how much I'm I don't even know. <laughs> That's okay. I appreciate the time with both of you today. I really do. And if I can ever be a help again in the future, please let me know. Will do. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patyahal, and your audio engineer for this episode was the great Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.